0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: The other story of the day that everybody's going to be talking about when they're not talking about Mario Draghi and the ECB is the new Apple iPhone 7. A lot of technical changes, better camera, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the story of the day for Apple and the iPhone is that they got rid of the headphone jack. It's been around forever. All those headphones that you have, now you're going to get wireless. Well, you got to buy them. Wireless headphones. Wireless earbuds. Uh, they're like you cut the cord off. And that's how you will listen. Will anybody buy the iPhone now, or is that going to put people off the stock down four-tenths in pre-market trading? It rose just six-tenths of a percent yesterday. Uh, Gene Munster is with Piper Jaffray. He is uh, the analyst who covers Apple there. And, Gene, you were telling Fred and I a short time ago that you're more optimistic than most that Americans will accept the idea of going wireless with their headphones?
2: Yeah, because it's a, it's a better experience, and I think that they've done this in the past, and they've eliminated, for example, some obstacle drives. And uh, so I think that they have a history of kind of pushing the, the technology forward. And the analog jack has been around for about 70 years, and so I think it's about time we, we move away from that. The other kind of surprising move is Apple's notorious when they make some small changes in their accessories and how you plug your phone in to charge you around somewhere 30 to $40 for a connector. In this case, they're giving that connector away for free. So all of your investment, your existing uh, headphones, wired headphones is safe. But they clearly, as you mentioned, Mike, they clearly want to move you to this whole new paradigm uh, mm-hmm. that is different than Bluetooth, too. It will be easier to connect. And ultimately, people do prefer wireless, even though it's more expensive. Uh, right.
3: But, Jean, I feel cheated. I love Apple. I'm a user. I'm not an analyst. I have to buy AirPods, which will cost me more than $150. They have a five-hour battery life. Uh, I know they have a, a you know, battery charger inbuilt, but it's $150. And I feel like, once again, Apple is forcing me to buy something that I may not want.
2: Well, you, you can still just use your Bluetooth wireless headphones, so that still that still works. They're giving you the option to to buy those more expensive AirPods, and and then separately is that they'll be they have Beats right now, obviously because they own Beats, but there's going to be a lot of other devices that will be uh, have this, this the same kind of AirPods uh, type of connection. And so I, I used it yesterday at the event. It's just a much simpler way to connect your headphones. So the simple answer, Fran, is you're still going to be able to use your old Bluetooth headphones, and if you want to pay up for new headphones, uh, then then uh, you have to do that.
1: Yeah, Here's the problem, Gene. I've s- probably still got the headphones from the first iPhone I ever got, but the 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 uh, uh, consensus in the newsroom is you're going to lose these things, or you're going to lose one of them, and then you've only got one uh, ears worth of uh, listening, and you got to go buy another one. I mean, how how do they handle that?
2: Well, that's going to be they're probably going to love that because it's going to force you to to probably end up buying a whole new set, and so. Um, What you've seen is that the the ones that they've shown, the AirPods, are two separate ones. And as you said, people are going to lose those. They'll come out with accessories that will make it so it's going to be more difficult to lose those. For example, things that will wrap around your ears so they don't fall out as easy. But there's also going to be many, many uh, new wireless devices that have that AirPod methodology for connecting It will be connected just like Bluetooth. So a lot of the ones that they showed from Beats, for example, you wouldn't fall out and lose one, for example, because they're connected. So um, I think that uh, for those who do have AirPods, that will be something frustrating. But for the other people, I think they're just going to be fine.
3: Yeah, but for the other people, then you need an adapter, Gene. And so you're buying into this. You think this is a good move. A lot of people won't. If they realize in two months that the overwhelming majority of their customers don't like this, can they reverse? Do they change course? If this goes wrong, what can they do to make it better? Well,
2: I I think uh, the probability that it goes wrong uh just to put it into perspective i think is is extremely low and part of the reason is that they've they they made it backwards compatible with that connector that i talked about that comes with the phone separately is your existing bluetooth will work and third if you want to push the envelope and try something that connects more easily i think the reason why this will work is consumers are frustrated with how Bluetooth works. Your your phone typically has many devices that are connected on Bluetooth. Often you have to pair and unpair and forget device to get it to work and this is just going to simplify this. In other words, it is a better experience and I think that better experiences will win longer term. But I don't think that they're going to have to reverse course on this.
1: Well is this the beginning of a, a whole move to a wireless uh, interconnectivity with the Apple experience, is is everything going to be wireless now from the, the uh, Macintosh to the iPhone to the iWatch?
2: Yeah, and when you pair these new headphones, it automatically pairs to all of your Apple devices. And you're exactly right, is the way we interface with computers is changing. And our existing interface is keyboard and mouse and touchscreen, but in the future, it's really going to be voice-driven and and even, and even using your thoughts and, and your eyes to drive the interface. And so what you're seeing right now is just the very beginning of what is going to be a new way to interface with computing.
1: Well, I was just going to say, you probably don't want to own stock in Monster Cable these days then.
2: <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, I think that would be, uh, I don't know much about the stock, but it, it doesn't seem like a good theme.
3: Gene, uh, very quickly, what is the, the, the one thing that actually we're misunderstanding about Apple? The, the watch hasn't really gone to plan. I don't mean to sound so downbeat, but how can, can they leverage, actually, and make sure that they remain number one, especially when you look at all the Asian producers?
2: I think the one piece that gets missed just over the next five years is there's still a lot of innovation to go with the phone, and I know that's not in consensus. But people think that the innovation in the smartphone's over, and this version of the iPhone just isn't as exciting as I think future versions will be specifically future versions will have a phone that flips and becomes a tablet and then back to a phone and then I think just down the road there's going to be this this move towards um this this whole augmented reality experience it's Pokemon on, on steroids with a lot of different aspects to it. In other words, I think that the franchise, the platform, is still going to yield some major improvements that we're all going to benefit from.
1: We'll get to the ECB in a few moments, but we want to wrap up our, decision, uh, our discussion with Gene Munster from Piper Jaffray about Apple and the, uh, the new iPhone. They also announced changes uh, to the operating system to um, the, the Apple Watch, and i ask you about that in a second. But uh, just before we do, uh, John Tucker brought up a really interesting question. Uh, Apple's got this China strategy how do people in china afford these new hundred and fifty dollar headphones gene
2: i i think the the way they do it is that there's going to be knockoffs that will use the same connection protocol so they probably won't be buying the the airpods but they'll probably buy iphones new iphones and buy accessories that are much cheaper than 150 dollars and And that accessory, this is just to put it into perspective, the hardware accessories for Apple is about 3% of total sales. So uh, just to put all those numbers into perspective.
3: Gene, what I'm concerned about overall is that we underestimate the power of a lot of the Asian producers, be it Huawei or be it even companies like Samsung. I know they have a major setback now with this recall, but there are actually producers out there that are selling to the emerging markets because they're so much cheaper that we're not seeing in our markets yet
2: we're not and they're more much more competitive as you said in emerging markets uh they have just they've been around they've they've been dabbling some of those companies you mentioned have been dabbling in the u.s but just haven't gotten much strength and the reason is that people who have iphones especially in the u.s are really committed to it it's something that we survey a couple times a year the last few surveys have been 93 percent rebuy rate so I think a lot of people, um, at least in the U.S., don't give them an opportunity. But outside of the U.S., they have been more competitive than those other ones. And I think what we've seen is that just the, the Apple is still gaining share, but at a at a slower pace because of some of those cheaper phones.
1: All right. They also announced an upgrade to the. Uh uh, or an overhaul of the iWatch and uh, made some, some other announcements about operating systems, et cetera. Sum that up for us and what impact it's going to have.
2: Well, the watch is waterproof and has built-in GPS. And if, if you're a watch fan, you'll like it. If you're not, it's probably not going to change how you feel about the watch. The biggest event in the watch is going to be in the next few years. They'll likely decouple that from your iPhone so you can be able to take phone calls and do texts without having your phone with you. The other, I think, big news that gets lost in this is what they're doing with Apple Pay. And they mentioned that 90% of tap-and-pay transactions in the U.S. are with Apple Pay. They're going to in mobile browser in two weeks. And what that means is it's going to be much easier for you to use Apple Pay on websites, whether you're on your computer or on a website on your phone. And I think that that could uh, fundamentally change the, the payments landscape, which is a bold comment. But I think that's been largely missed in all the news in the last day.
1: Gene Messer, thanks for joining us this morning from Piper Jaffray on Apple. The stock down in pre-market trading three-tenths of eight percent.
0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at FindYourIndependentAdvisor.com.
1: It is almost time for the ECB decision. We're about uh, eight minutes away or so. Joining us now, Megan Green, the chief economist at Manulife Asset Management. Uh, you've spent an awful lot of time watching things in Europe. Uh, does do you, When you look at what's happening in the European economy and you look at where monetary policy is in Europe, does uh, Mario Draghi have to do more at this point?
4: He absolutely has to do more. Um, the question is when exactly and how much pressure he feels to do more today. And on that front, um, I think we might all be a little bit disappointed. The The ECB's never been ahead of the game, ever, um, and I don't think we can expect them to be this time around. Mario Draghi would have to do something really drastic to get inflation expectations up even anywhere close to the target of just under 2%. Um, The eurozone economy is growing by around one and a half percent. That's pretty lackluster. Um, You know, it would be great if the ECB could help stoke that, but that would require dramatic actions. And today, I think we'll just get a a series of small tweaks.
3: Megan, will they address or at least acknowledge the fact that there is just not enough things to buy, right? There's a scarcity facing these asset purchases,
4: I think they'll have to. There's a good chance they'll run out of things to buy before the end of this um, QE program next March. Um, But even if they can make it to next March, they won't be be able to make it much further. Um, No one knows exactly what the ECB is holding, of course, and their price effects. But um, they're starting to run low. And so if they do extend this QE program, they'll they'll absolutely have to expand it as well. Um, One thing that they should be looking into buying as equities, Um, and it's not unprecedented the BOJ is buying up equities right now. That could help a bit, Um, but again, I don't think that we'll hear Mario Draghi announce that today.
1: I want to ask you about that in a moment, because obviously that's a controversial idea. But I want to set up the decision coming out at 745. Uh, The main refinancing rate, which is zero right now, uh, comes out. uh, The marginal lending facility, 25 basis points. And the deposit facility, the deposit rate is the one everybody's been focused on, because that's the negative rate they're using. It's at negative 40 basis points right now. That's one of the reasons they're running out. Of things to buy is because they can't buy anything that's yielding below that, and a lot of German debt is. So could we see a move in that today to give them more room to expand their asset purchases?
4: So I think that's unlikely um, in large part because of how much it's squeezing banks, Um, and we've already just gone through an Italian banking crisis. And I say just gone through it, we're still in one, really, Um, but the markets um, seem to be Feeling more comforted about that. Um, Portuguese banks look pretty dicey as well. German banks don't even look that great. Um, So even though we've had the stress test results, I think there's a lot looming on European bank balance sheets and cutting the deposit rate further into negative territory um, would hurt them. What we might see, instead of having it just be that you can't buy any assets yielding below that deposit rate, they might tweak it and say that there's some kind of weighted average of yields um, so that you can technically buy some assets that fall below that deposit rate, as long as there are others that don't fall below it.
3: Megan, the, the problem is that they're nowhere near their targets, right? They're nowhere near inflation, growth. It's not in the mandate, but growth is going nowhere. So he will have to, I guess, reassure the markets in, in the news conference that he's ready, that he has the tools to do more.
4: That's right. Um, And not only that he has the tools, but um, that he's got the bonds to buy. Um, You know, he's the announcement included that, you know, they'll buy assets until March 2017 or beyond, um, but they're going to run out. And so he has to provide some kind of comfort that they're going to expand their QE program so that they can actually follow through on that.
3: I mean, technical tweaks, right, is the word that I hear on. This is what markets will hope Mario Draghi will give hints of when he talks about QE. Will that be enough to reassure the markets that he will do more?
4: You know, I don't think it will be. Um, Technical tweaks will help a little bit. um, But the QE program hasn't been particularly particularly successful in terms of boosting inflation expectations. In fact, they just keep falling further and further. Um, so the ECB is really going to have to do something drastic. It's clearly not close to that there. But I think um, if, if we want to know what the ECB is going to do, we just have to look to the BOJ. It looks like the ECB is falling right in their footsteps. And they're going to have to buy up more and different kinds of assets um, and eventually get bolder um, and possibly do things like helicopter money.
1: Well, uh, you also mentioned equities. So let's ask about both of those things in combination, buying equities or helicopter money. Helicopter money prohibited by the EU charter in theory because you can't monetize debt. It would be hard to get that politically through, I would think. And you've got a political problem with equities because whose equity, even if you buy ETFs, what country? I mean, do you try to base it on capital key and then as stocks go up and down? I mean, you're, you're constantly trying to juggle there.
4: Yep. Yeah, so you're right. There are legal challenges. There are lots of legal challenges in Europe that um, all of a sudden disappear like QE or bailing out member states. Um, so, you know, Mario Draghi's a master consensus builder. He's done a good job so far. And so um, I, don't, I wouldn't um, take these things off the table just because they're politically challenging. Um, you're right, there are challenges, though, with buying equities. Um, they'd have to put together some kind of basket of equities. Um, it will be unpopular. Um, it's worth keeping in mind that Germany has an election coming up and Merkel's ratings have been falling pretty significantly, so she'll be really reticent to sign up to anything that will tell the German taxpayers that German money is going to um, profligate weaker countries. in Europe. Um, so the politics are very challenging. Um, but then again, growth is incredibly weak. Inflation's nowhere near their target and won't be over the next five years. Um, so if they really are going to stick to their mandate, I think they're going to have to go ahead and buy up equities.
1: Speaking of uh, Frau Merkel, you told Fran and I uh, earlier on Bloomberg surveillance TV that uh, she has some influence on what the ECB does or thinks. What about the other way around? What if Mario Draghi, who has been going around saying we need more fiscal help, says to you know to her and to everybody else, you know, we're at our limit. We're done. And the pressure is on her, and she's got to do something if she's going to keep the economy propped up going into the election.
4: So they have been saying this, actually. For quite some time now, Mario Draghi has repeated, hey, you know, European leaders, over to you. We've done everything we can. Um, the problem is the only real pressure is going to come from the markets. And as long as you have the ECB stepping in and buying up, all kinds of assets, that pressure is removed. So it's this endless balance between the central bank trying to step in, um, reduce volatility, um, you know, improve financial stability, and then on the one hand, and then policymakers taking that as a sign that they don't actually have to do the, their hard work um, and and going ahead and not providing any kind Fran, of fiscal stimulus. Fran,
1: can I mention pressure from the markets? Tenure yield in the U.S. is 1.55% today. The German 10-year yield fell on the uh, rate announcement to negative uh, nine basis points. And the Spanish 10-year yield is below the U.S. The Spanish 10-year yield is at 93 basis points. (laughs) Uh, What world are we in here in terms of market pressure?
3: This is, this is exactly the problem, right? With, because of all this QE, then you don't have the market pressure that is maybe needed to do more or, or actually to spur politicians into action. Megan, I have a very simple question. If the ECB kept its stimulus program unchanged, they are intimating that basically they're not seeing immediate dangers, right, from the recovery to the recovery, either because of Brexit or because of lower inflation. Are we too pessimistic?
4: Uh, I don't think so. I think there are, as I mentioned before, huge concerns about um, banking in Europe, particularly Italian banks. And Italy, of course, is one of the biggest countries. So if the ECB decided to go ahead... Um, and not expand or extend its QE program to try to get markets to put pressure on policymakers, I think that would actually just feed through into the banks and would cause a crisis. And then either the ECB would have to step in again, um, or they would risk some kind of existential crisis um, that they've avoided up to this point, and we can expect them to continue to avoid
3: But the way you deal with the banks is basically getting rid of these bailout rules, again, if Angela Merkel does. But for the ECB, is there not something to be said that there are less risks than there were six months ago because Brexit happened and actually, well, nothing has happened yet?
4: Well, you're exactly right. Nothing has happened yet. And so I think there's a a ton of complacency out there, particularly in the markets. Um, But when the UK does end up triggering Article 50, um, I think... That, and when we get a better sense of what exactly Brexit looks like, because we still have no idea, um, then I think the effects will be more felt.
1: The ECB has the single mandate of inflation. Their target is 2%. But after all these years of QE and low, even negative rates from the ECB, they got no inflation. Can central banks generate inflation these days?
4: Um, There's only one way for central banks to do that, and that's to boost aggregate demand in the economies. Um, And in my mind, everything they've tried has been totally unsuccessful in doing that. Um, I think the only chance they really have for generating aggregate demand is helicopter money. Um, so it's, it's not even strictly monetary policy. It's some kind of um, conflagration of monetary and fiscal policy. Now, of course, a better option would be for governments to step in and provide fiscal policy to stoke domestic demand. Um, but I don't think we're going to see that, not in the Western world and certainly not now.
3: Megan, how do you define helicopter money? Because there's a debate. We don't really know what we're talking about. Is it, you know, 20 euros, 50 euros, 150 euros put through my letterbox?
4: Uh, So it could take a million different forms. Um, One is just coupons or um, deposits being put into people's bank accounts. Um, Another is tax rebates. That's more common. Um, I think that different central banks will have to employ it differently as well. In Japan, for example, um, people have tended to take tax rebates and stick it in the bank, which defeats the purpose entirely. So they'll have to be more creative about forcing people to go ahead and spend that money. You can provide an expiration date on the money so that people are, are incentivized to go out and spend it. But it's going to lo- have to look different in different economies. Um, for the ECB, of course, it's it's mandate covers a whole bunch of different types of economies. Germans tend to save, for example, whereas Greeks don't. Um, so it's going to be hard to try to bridge that gap with one particular policy.
1: If you, uh, We used to have a columnist here who used to talk about how central banks can sort of buy anything to stimulate the economy. And she always used to use uh, the example they could buy Toyotas, which led me to think about helicopter money of Toyotas dropping out of helicopters on top of people. But uh, <laughs> if they did something like that, then how do they ever get out of it? Because politicians would love to feed at the trough of stimulating economies. And if it's free money, in other words, <laughs> I don't have to sell bonds to pay for it. Uh, how do they stop that politically? As the, somebody put it yesterday, how do you get the helicopter to land?
4: Well, it's tricky. The idea is it would be a one-off. And then once you stick money into the economy and incentivize people to spend it, there are multiplier effects and confidence effects. And as everybody's spending and businesses start investing more, um, macroeconomic fundamentals catch up to confidence so that it becomes this virtuous cycle. Um, That's the ideal case, and it certainly doesn't always work that way. So there is a chance that if you do one helicopter drop, you'll have to follow it on with, with others.
3: Does it work? How do we know that helicopter money works? I mean, it, again, it distorts the, mar- the, the markets, but it's not unclear whether I get 150 pounds, whether I just go and spend it or hold on to it.
4: Yeah, and there, I think, um, how exactly you structure it is really important. It certainly can work. There are ways to structure helicopter money so that it absolutely increases aggregate demand. If someone gives you 100 pounds and says, this expires tomorrow, but you can use it for anything now, you're hard-pressed to go ahead and stick it in your pocket, I think. So there are ways to get people to go out and spend. Um, Some of them are more extreme than others.
1: So we send out cash and shopping catalogs at the same time, (laughs) so people are incented. <laughs> Megan Green from Manulife Asset Management. Thanks for joining us. Now we're going to bring in uh, Mitch Rochelle with a very interesting new, uh, from uh, PWC, we, uh, regular friend of this program. They have a very interesting study here, because uh, and timely, because of Brexit and because of what's going on in Europe, uh, and everybody talking about where business might move. The United States is not uh, it, it, the first choice anymore for, for uh, businesses, Mitch. Uh, you, you evaluate 30 cities around the world, and um, we're slipping.
5: We're taking it on the chin, Michael, <laughs> relative to the rest of the world. That's correct.
1: Now, um, Francine, I guess, is located in the right place to be.
5: She's in London or, or, or anywhere yes. other than the United States. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> London finished first, and the, the obvious question everybody's asking is, what about Brexit? A uh, little bit of full disclosure. The principal research we did for the study took place through the, you know prior to, but what we did was we held off the release and went and did some additional research to see if anything would have changed. Um, the, there are 67 attributes that we evaluate the 30 cities across. Imagine all that data. But one of the things that's interesting is if you look at the characteristics of the cities that are in the, across the intellectual capital, technology, their gateway status, transportation infrastructure, and so on, those aren't things that change overnight as a result of a vote or as a result of the decision of an electorate. So right. um, we felt relatively comfortable that the, uh, the the number one ranking of London in the study would hold up Brexit notwithstanding.
3: See, I'm a little bit I'm, – I'm worried because we buy a lot of uh, French biscuits. And once we lose access to the single market, those French biscuits and almost everything else we buy coming from the continent are, are probably going to be 30 percent more expensive.
5: So cost, Francine, is a is a factor, and economic clout is a factor. And it's quite possible a year from now, if we're having this conversation, that London would slip, if not considerably. Um, I, but I think the bigger takeaway, London aside, even if London fell two spots in our study a year from now, the thing that was really alarming, uh, you know, because Michael's sitting in New York is – why is New York in sixth place relative to, you know, five other cities around the world that are ahead of it?
1: Why is New York in sixth place relative to five other cities <laughs> that are ahead of it?
5: Uh, you know, it's it, it's partially quality of life. It's partially of cost, um, uh, ease of doing business, uh, infrastructure. Um, there, You know, my big observation, I'm actually on the West Coast now, of the – wise, I'd be gracing with my presence in the studio, but there is no way to get from Midtown Manhattan to JFK or LaGuardia by mass transit. And when you look at other cities around the world, everybody seems to have that, and for some reason we don't. Um, Interestingly enough, there are less taxi cabs in New York City than as a percentage of population in most other cities around the world. So it's interesting elements of infrastructure, and then the ease of doing business, the regulatory environment. The cost, the personal tax rate in New York, as I think, twenty eighth out of the thirty cities in the survey. So, those kinds of elements um, contribute to why New York is falling behind, um, even though it's uh, number two in economic cloud and leading in you know technology and other categories.
1: Well, you've got uh, the U.S. out of the, the top five, uh, London followed by Singapore, Toronto, Paris, and Amsterdam. So, Europe well represented. Um, what about Asia? Uh, Singapore is the only one that seems to get uh, high marks.
5: Yeah, Singapore, Hong Kong. The interesting thing about the, the study, and I've been trying to sort of wrap my brains around why, I think it's really a question of balance, right? So we have all of these criteria that we evaluate the cities against, and we don't weight them. So when you're strong in education, transit, health, um, economics, governance, and, and there's equal weight to how responsible the city is for shared good, whether it be um, housing, how they care for their elderly, how relocation-friendly. So, But you, when you think about all of those criteria, some of the Asian cities really haven't struck that right balance relative to European cities.
1: Mitch Rochelle with PwC. Uh- cities you want to do business in. London, uh, Francine Lacroix has picked the right city, London number one, even with the prospect of Brexit.
0: New York slips to sixth. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.